It's July 20th, 2023. This is The Rock. Are you finished coughing? It's your first time back in months, and this is the way you start. Welcome to episode 273 of Is that you want to give it away? <laughs> I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello, from Toronto. Salam, Dustan Aziz, Durubashim. I hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. I will explain who that voice you just heard is, or the... The rabid coughing that you heard <laughs> over the opening theme. But first, drinking in Iran. Mm-hmm. That is today's topic, today's theme. Drinking in Iran, more specifically the paradox of alcohol and the Islamic world. On the one hand, it's forbidden. On the other hand, mm-hmm. the history of the Middle East, the Islamic world, Iran is awash in drinking, in alcohol. So how do we make sense of this? Um, and my, there's a little bit of a backstory to the guest today, who is Dr. Rudy Maté, who's got this brand new book. I don't even know. If, I think the book just has been published. It's called Angels Tapping at the Wine Shop's Door, A History of Alcohol in the Islamic World. So Dr. Rudy Maté was on our show mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, maybe, for the Contemporary History of Iran, and he'd written a book which is about drug practices and drug consumption mm-hmm. in Iran, particularly opium, right. which we did the interview about. Uh, fascinating, got a lot of response. People were really interested. At the time, he said, I'm finishing a book on alcohol and the Islamic world and of the contradictions therein. And uh, it was like, well, geez, tell us when the book is done. <laughs> you know, a couple months ago, he sent me an email. The book is done mm-hmm. and it's coming out. And, and uh, I've just finished reading it. I'm looking forward to talking to him. It is such a rich area to to talk about and mm-hmm. we're going to spend this show uh, today's episode uh entirely on the idea of alcohol drinking uh and where this fits in culturally socially historically politically religiously uh in the case of iran in the studio smart pega is here in the studio hello Dr. Rudy Maté will be joining us for the feature interview in just a little bit. And also, sitting in the studio, the dramatic (laughs) coughing return of Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. You have... uh, Don't you love that... uh, you know, you've uh, we're, we talk regularly, we're friends, yeah. but the show that I invite you back to is is about drinking. What does this say yeah, about how so I see you? <laughs> it was Let's no, see, it was, a, a show about alcoholism. <laughs> Let's get Reza. He, I know, yeah. I know. Like actors went on strike. You guys done shows about all sorts of things that very like we have so many mutual like areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And then I get this call. Jan is like, hey, I know you're busy. You're working and stuff. We're doing a show. I want to have you on. And uh, there's this great guest. You're going to love. Uh, there's Shiraz involved and uh, a lot of drinking, bro. So <laughs> do you want to be on? Well, I, am I wrong? This is something you know about. The, 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 uh, at least that context, the social yes, etiquette yes, yes, of yes. drinking I grew up in, in contemporary Iran. Iran. You grew up in Iran. Shiraz, the party Post-revolution. town. Post-revolution. Post-revolution. 
and and what we're exploring is i mean this is look at for me these are the things that as someone who didn't grow up in iran are always mess with my head where mm. you know how does what are the mechanics of how this all works yeah. you know it's like um, it's like there's no dancing, but everybody knows how to dance. Well, where do they dance? You know, so so uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of know that one, but but where what the actual pipelines are, what the and how this happened historically with the coming of Islam, that not only did um, the prohibition of alcohol not work clearly, mm-hmm. um, but but that our culture is so rich in drinking you know poetry art about uh, that that involves drinking that the the romance of yeah. drinking the social um now that i've read the book i mean there's there's so much detail to go into but i was thinking about what i always think of as um when it comes to iranians first of all i've never thought of i i do think of iranians as drinkers mm-hmm. like i've this is one of those things where the outside world thinking islamic country yeah. you know yeah all oh, these people don't you know they they're not familiar with the, um, <laughs> Could have been yeah. Little do they know. right yeah i mean no. i mean this is a drinking culture heavily you know? like you could say like we compete with the irish like mm. it's yeah yeah especially post like the generation that uh like in the 80s and 90s that grew up um, because, where where things really the crackdown thi- yeah, really yeah, yeah. happened yeah. yeah and it was like extremely prohibited um, to drink and it's it's it, it, there was nothing else to do it's not like uh, like in, it's not like it's prohibited to drink but you could uh, you have Wonderland mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you could go like bowling with your girlfriend but just don't drink it's not it's just not none of that you can't wear colors Wonderland is a theme park by the way oh by in the way, Canada yeah. for people listening in uh, <laughs> wondering. Australia Listen, wondering what that Wonderland. was a smart choice of word because yeah. for people around the world mm-hmm. they would associate that with Alice in Wonderland mm. which is quite a magical place sure. you see you, Works you as gotta a metaphor. stop questioning I gotta stop Jean. giving you not giving you credit uh, and stop inviting me for <laughs> drugs and alcohol related <laughs> theme well, programs well, well you seemed very enthusiastic you were like yes immediately I can't wait to hear that interview hey, uh, this can, is the history what would you say I mean we'll get into the interview and and you'll hear me talk about the book and we'll, I don't want to get your reactions after I ta- speak to Dr. Rudy Bate, but what would you say how do you make sense of the paradox of something that was forbidden and something that was, I'm assuming, ubiquitous mm-hmm. as you were growing up. I mean, what, wh- where did you see alcohol and how did you receive it and all of that? Well, in the house, and and it was always known as Arak Sagi, hmm. uh, which is something that is even sold in Toronto, Canada, at the LCBO, like a legitimate uh, liquor license store. And uh, it's a Persian uh, liquor, essentially, that homemade. Vodka-esque. Vodka-esque, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of um, uh, cognac-y type. And uh, it's homemade, uh, usually, and there are sagis <laughs> around town. Mm-hmm. And everybody has kind of like a dealer on, like you have two or three uh, numbers that you call one, is not available to call. And are the dealers usually non-Muslims? No, well, not always. Uh-huh. Look, this is Here's the thing, there was... When I was when I was younger, because they're allowed, like uh, Armenians yes, are yes. allowed mm-hmm. to have alcohol, right? They're not allowed to sell, but they're allowed to have uh-huh. and make for their own right. consumption. But I do remember vividly that, like, when I was like five or six, my that my dad like would have this Armenian guy, mm-hmm. uh, who would bring him like alcohol and stuff, and then 
uh, I got older and in my teens, that wasn't the case. Like it was like Ali Abbasi also, he's also no. in Basi. GM has Khudesh Chizai Khubi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like corruption dug right. deep. It became like more of a underground mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. way of making money kind of thing. Well, could, just canvassing the, the Rook team and um, people who I've been talking to over the last week. Yeah, it, it, it almost started to become a joke. It's like everybody's got an Armenian. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I got an Armenian guy who's a really great guy. He gets me that, you know, and, and, and so they, these are the contacts that mm-hmm. people have. I still don't know, I mean, how, for example, I'm going to ask Dr. Rudy about it. I mean, he's, he's doing a history of the last thousand years. So, but, but, you know, in contemporary Iran, how on the one hand, first of all, the rules seem to be all over the place. On the one hand, there's people getting arrested and, and put in jail for, um, long periods of time years you know for mm-hmm. we have one of our team members said they know somebody who went to jail for 11 years wow. for being caught That's with crazy. alcohol and then on the other hand people are having these parties all the time it's yeah. it's like white marriage it's like a lot of the yeah. things where a lot of especially younger iranians just going to you know for, fuck it i mean we're yeah. gonna do what we do mm-hmm. do you have any personal relationship with iran and alcohol Pega? with an armenian <laughs> well I, I mean uh, no you know what the one time that yeah. I've, I've been back to iran like when i was what 17 i think it was Obviously, there were a lot of family events and parties and things like that. And I never once thought about it, you know, thinking, well, where is this alcohol coming from? Because there, huh. it was just so, so it's there. It's there. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, it's it the amazing no thing. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. One of the things he says in this book uh, is that due to the fact that it has been taboo, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it is officially forbidden um, for so many centuries in the Islamic world, there's no particular open culture of sociability that developed, say, like, like with red wine, you know, having it um, enlivened meals in a, in a restaurant right, or something right. like that, um, sipping it at a gathering. So alcohol um, it took on this express purpose to get drunk as <laughs> as fast as possible. This is well, he says this in the book, and I'm going to ask him about it. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, sometimes patterns of behavior that have long, deep roots in history will still assert themselves, mm-hmm. even when the sociocultural context is different. So I find Iranians today do generally seem to drink to get drunk. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like this is a thing we know about yeah. Iranian parties. It's like you yeah. get there and it's already to do the tequila, tequila it's shots. It's got to I mean, be hammered. It, and really, I mean, um, this is a stereotype, obviously. Yeah. And obviously there are people who, you know, for whom this isn't true, as with the Irish, etc. But <laughs> but uh, I would say of all the cultures and peoples that we know, I mean, I, if I were to stereotype Canadians, I would say going to a bar is not about within the first half an hour getting as no. drunk as you possibly can and doing as many tequila shots as you yeah. as you can. And yet, that not it interesting how that lineage, that, that sort of, um, that practice yeah. carries through to Iranians in the diaspora in North America that really have nothing to do with the, the taboo nature. It's almost like a psychological overcompensation that you carry over for like generations like these people never d- had to deal with that kind of or if they did like it wasn't absolutely so d- but you see the effect of it very <laughs> like blatantly in you, also, you also see it in what they choose to drink like if you look oh at, yeah yes, right? yes like that's i've never i mean i can't say never but most iranians i know it's like tequila or yeah. 
or whiskey or hard like a vodka yeah exactly or a vodka like these are your three choices it's like tequila vodka whiskey that's it i had a party a few years ago that not not, i mean like three or four years ago and i used to my parties like canadian kind of party you know (laughs) i would have wine and beer right you know that that was usually enough yeah because you can't offer the entire people the persians were mad at me where's the whiskey what is this (laughs) what do you what do you this isn't what how are we supposed to be social (laughs) with this stuff you know what a wine and the jokes that they were just like oh so you don't want anybody to get drunk and what you want if it's like geez wow the judgment i gotta get the hard liquor out i think the first time i was taken aback by that was when i went to one of these like um persian events like a concert or something like that and so i had been to other concerts and whatever else but i went to this iranian concert and i went to the bar and i was like they have whiskey and tequila shots and things like that. Whereas if you go to a concert, like yeah, a beer. non-Iranian concert, <laughs> there's, there's beer. There's yeah. beer. Yeah. And now yeah. like maybe one of those, yeah, like, wine. I don't know, seltzers or whatever, right. but there's definitely no tequila <laughs> shots lined up. <laughs> yeah. And then the ca- the crowd gets wasted and they don't really care about the music on the stage. I mean, the, the whole thing. What about uh, gin and tonic? Is that considered hard, hard drink? Well, it's alcohol. Yeah. yeah. It's not a, <laughs> That's your favorite drink. That is my favorite. Well, yeah, that, and I mean, I do like the tequila. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, okay, so Dr. Rudy Mate coming up with his new book and will untangle this paradox of alcohol in the Islamic world, and and then we'll come back and talk about it. Before we wanted to get there, though, I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I've been kind of obsessed with this song. Uh, it's it's a brand new song that is in the UK charts. You know, I'm into the UK right. stuff. Mm-hmm. My British mm-hmm. background. And, mm-hmm. um, Captain Reza being the director of. Uh, uh, what was it called again? <laughs> <laughs> Bravo! Only the matter of time before he forgot. <laughs> Talking the name to of Persians, London program. Uh, we Ron went Rook. to Britain. R O Q E. Talking to Persians, London, uh, and uh, that was an exp- exploration of England. And anyway, on the music charts right now in England, there's a song. I'm, I'm into UK hip hop. There's a band called DBE, a hip hop oh. group called DBE. Do you know this song? No. Oh, D Block Europe. They got a sound person, Louise. Can you hit, hit a bit? This is they got this. Uh, go for it. Just play it. Uh, they got a new song that is on the charts. Called the song's called Pakistan. Oh, okay. okay. D uh, D Block Europe DBE featuring Clavish. Take a listen to this. Okay, so did you catch the turn down a little bit? Did you catch the first line? Yes, I did. Do you know what did he say? He said something from Iran. He, he said, "Did you catch it?" Tariq. She she can't she can't take me home. Her dad is from Iran. Oh. <laughs> she can't. I wow. thought he said I took hashish from Iran. No, no, no. He also said I got heroin from Pakistan, <laughs> but which he's doing the rhyme of Pakistan and Iran. <laughs> but she can't take me home. Her dad is from Iran. I think it's. I, I think that is the greatest opening line <laughs> to a song and, by non-Iranians. And no accurate, life. so accurate. Well, exactly. What is that? Could you want to? Do you well, want to decode like, that for us? Oh my God! Do I need to? Like, if there is one person out there who's ever dated an Iranian girl, they know the. Hang on a how- second. Here it comes again. Turn up. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Of course, because he's conservative. 
That can't happen. Uh, it it rings a little happen. too close to home for me. Hey, listen, the Persian well, I'm, dads funny I've dealt enough, with. Funny enough, you brought that up because I just got off the phone with a friend of mine yesterday, uh, yesterday who told me his sister is pregnant. They're not married. He's dating a oh. guy. And boyfriend. Iranian? Iranian. Mm -hmm. The guy is Iranian. They're happy. Couldn't be more cheerful. They told their parents, the and the girl's parents, obviously, who are separated. They're not even together. Okay. Living together. They got together. They joined force against this tragedy, <laughs> catastrophe of history. And they made his life a living hell for the past like two weeks. It's just fights and over and over again over conservativeness, like old ideologies. Yeah, Persian uh, Persian dads. There's some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's some something's in the sauce. Good, the guy had chip on yeah. their shoulder. Of course, baby. So anyway, DVE. The song is called Pakistan. If you're interested out there. Yeah, it, it rings a little too close to home for me, for, for, for sure. Uh, but it's such a funny... Uh, what I love is, is that um, this group, I mean, the song's called Pakistan, they're in the UK, they're mm -hmm. these brown guys. It's not... I don't, I'm pretty sure none of them... I know Clavishes, I don't think the D-Block guys are Iranian. But, but they've got this line that not only do we understand, but they expect everybody else to understand too, right? She can't take over dad's from Iran. Oh yeah, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy that we don't even bat an eye. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you. Uh, Smart Pega, we'll come back to you right after this uh, interview with Dr. Rudy. I should mention we are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in both English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Remember, you can support us by going to rookmedia.com and pressing the support us button where you can become a Rook member on patreon hey if you have the means if you don't that's okay if you do and you can support us and you can help us out and you've been part of the crowdfunding go to uh again the website rookmedia.com press the support us and you get uh you'll link to a page where you can become a rook member through our patreon page for a few bucks a month and we really appreciate it all right, let's get to our guests. Well, we all know that alcohol is officially forbidden under Islam, but we also know that most of the Islamic world, including Iran, has a long history that is drenched in drinking and culturally entwined with the consumption, celebration, romance, medicinal practice of wine, beer, alcohol. So how do we make sense of this, the great contradictions of alcohol and Islam? Well, we are fortunate to have a returning guest who knows this field, an American academic who is an expert in early modern Iran and has literally just released a fine and comprehensive book on the subject. Dr. Rudy Matei is a distinguished professor of Middle Eastern history at the University of Delaware, specializing in the Safavid and Qajar dynasties. He is a member of the Association of the Study of Persianate Societies and has served as its president on two occasions. Professor Matei has been honored with several prestigious awards, including the Albert Hurani Book Prize presented by the Middle East Association of North America, the Saidi Sirjani Book Award granted by the International Society for Iranian Studies, and the British-Kuwaiti Friendship Book Prize. He's authored numerous influential books and articles, including The Politics of Trade in Safavid Iran, The Pursuit of Pleasure, Drugs and Stimulants in Iranian History, Persia in Crisis, Safavid Decline, and the 
fall of Isfahan and Russians in Iran, Diplomacy and Power in the Qajar Era and Beyond. His brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, is entitled Angels Tapping at the Wine Shop's Door, A History of Alcohol in the Islamic World. And right now, Dr. Rudy Mate joins me. Hello, sir. Thank you very much, Gian, for that kind and very generous introduction. And it's wonderful to be back. Thanks for inviting me again. I've been so, by the way, I don't, I, I usually say joins me from somewhere, but I don't know where you are. Are you in Delaware? I am in Delaware. I was just, I was in Italy until two weeks ago, or two, two days ago, actually. Ah. But I'm back home right now. That would have been much more glamorous to say he joins me from Milan <laughs> or something. But I actually did an interview on uh, VOA uh, Persian from uh, Northern Italy last week, so. Well, it's it's good to have you back at the home base, and it's good to have you on the program. And so, just a, a bit of a backstory for for the people listening: we had you on for that that book, "The Pursuit of Pleasure: Drugs and Stimulants in Iranian History," talking about opium, talking about the the background, the last two hundred years, especially of drug use in in Iran. And it was such a fascinating conversation. We got so much feedback for it. And at that time, you had said, "I'm working on a book about alcohol uh, in the Islamic world," and I had been savoring the opportunity both to read this book and to interview about it, uh, interview you about it. It it has been uh, as satisfying as I expected. I've learned a lot reading the book. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, let me start with a general question uh, that you could answer briefly because it's going to, I suspect, form the spine of the conversation we're going to have over the next 45 minutes. Uh, at the heart of your book uh, lies a paradox. Islam forbids alcohol and yet alcohol has had an essential cultural role in Muslim societies over the ages. So to quote you early in the book, you say consuming alcohol in an Islamic environment sounds oxymoronic, but in reality has always been part of the multiplicity of life, officially banned, but effectively tolerated at the margins. It's, it is quite a tangled contradiction. So in simple terms, how are we to understand the relationship between Muslims and alcohol? Very good. Well, you in, strike at the heart of the, the the argument and the problematic of the book. You know, the book really navigates uh, what I call a dichotomous image of Islam. On the one hand, we have this notion of Islam being a frivolous faith uh, given to the lights of the flesh, uh, indulgent, pleasure-seeking. Uh, and on the other hand, we have this idea of the narrow-minded faith, rule-bound, dogmatic, intolerant, forbidding, averse to fun. Remember Khomeini said there is no fun in Islam. Uh, and so the first one is, of course, sort of the classic Orientalist perception of Islam, right? It's also devoid of a moral core, which is part and part of this idea that it's pleasure-seeking, indulgent, and so forth, sort of decorative. Uh, but the second image is, of course, more contemporary and is adhered to not just by Westerners, but also many Muslims, fundamentalist Islam, if you will, you know, averse to pleasure. And um, so that the book is really an attempt to sort of break out of the dichotomy, if you will, and it uses uh, alcohol as a portal and as a window uh, to do so. And my argument really is that, like all religions, uh, by the way, necessarily, Islam in its traditional guise and, and appearance is, is, is very capacious. It's capable of embracing contradiction uh, and, and paradox, you know, mm. seeming contradictions, uh, and is uh, and appears as, you know, with a lot of ambiguity, uh, even in the transparent or the, the apparent transgression, transgressions that 
uh, Muslims c commit. They do not invalidate Islam, as far as I'm concerned. They indeed confirm Islam. Mm. You know, who knows about Abu Nuwas? You know, this sort of scandalous wine-drinking, wine-swilling poet who sticks it in the eye of the clerics and celebrates wine and wants to be buried you know, and under an avalanche of wine. Right, you know, right, that's right. all being moved out. So that, that is really the heart of the book. It, it, I mean, you let me just break down a little bit of what you've, you've said there, because to a certain extent, I can mm -hmm. imagine for a lot of, say, Iranians listening to this or people who come from this part of the world, from the Islamic world, it's not going to be a shock to them that there's this contradiction. Um, and yet you, you talk about the orthodoxy. I mean, you mentioned Khomeini there, and, and I, what was the famous pronouncement? God did not create man so that he could have fun, right? So, so you would say that the orthodoxy, the general view of the Islamic world and alcohol consumption has usually been that they are mutually exclusive, yes? Yes, and my argument is they're not. They're yes. an extension of one another. They they are complementary in some ways. Uh, but, you know, they're, it's not enough to say that, well, you know, Iranians drink typically, or many of them, and have always done, and you look at Hafez, and it's completely integral. So it, alcohol is fine. No, if you go to the text, to the scriptural version of Islam, and you have to do that at some point, then you will say that it's much more problematic. See, also look at Islam. Um, you know, both as faith and practice. I don't mm. separate these two. Both scripture, text, the Quran, the Hadith, you know, the presumed sayings of the Prophet and his companions on the one hand, but it's also the lived practice by Muslims who have not always abided by the rules. I mean, let's also realize that until quite recently, the vast majority of people are illiterate. They couldn't read the Quran, let alone the Hadith or any kind of learned disp disposition on Islam. Huh. So that alone accounts in part for all these infractions. You can be a good Muslim. You, you don't know what Islam is all about. You drink because you come from a tradition where drinking is integral and you live next to an Armenian. Can you tell me about the impetus for this book before we get into the details? I mean, what, why you wanted to write this? You, you know, you make the case at one point in the book that the whole idea that alcohol is forbidden in the, in the Islamic world uh, especially in places like Iran today, affects, of course, your ability to find and have an honest discourse about it when you're in these places or dealing with people um, in these places. Uh, th there hasn't even been a lot of research in the area, you say, in terms of the depth of the research that you would find about other places of the world and, and alcohol consumption. Is that what intrigued you? Is that what led you to want to deal with this? Well, you know, there are a couple, there are different elements. First of all, my past being Dutch, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s and being in touch with alcohol and drugs to a moderate extent. Uh, but more importantly, studying the Middle East and Iran in particular, I was always struck between the distinction, the distance oftentimes between appearance and reality, which of course exists in all societies. But I, I thought it was particularly pronounced in Islamic uh, societies in Iran. The whole idea of ta'aruf, for example, you know, is sort of bespeaks that whole thing. So I was always intrigued by that. And I ended up writing this earlier book, of course, where I encountered all these same things and tried to find some kind of solution to it. And then alcohol is, of course, kind of the substance par excellence because it is also, unlike opium, for example, explicitly forbidden, at least partly in the Quran itself. So you have that kind of tension between proscription on the one hand, and then the juggernaut that alcohol has proven to be in human history. And that includes, of course, the Middle East. In other words, Muslims drink 
and arguably they're doing more in terms of volume than most other people. Uh, so it's a fascinating topic, and that's really the answer to the question, as far as I'm concerned. Do Do you run into roadblocks if it if it's if you're dealing with something? Uh, um, the, the discussion of something that's for, forbidden in the area in which you're covering? Does it, does it, was, it, was it more difficult to get no, the research done? No, I mean, done? the book is, of course, not based on interviews or anything. You know, um, it's all textual. But to the extent I lived and traveled and worked in the Middle East, I have never had any issue in Iran. The Iranians are completely convinced that, you know, alcohol is, to the extent that they're Muslim at all, something that, you know, God has created for good reason. Um, and so I have never had any awkward discussions. The Arab world is somewhat different. I already got, already got an email saying that there is no drinking in Islam. So, well, read my book. You know, <laughs> there is a much more sort of, I, I hesitate the word dogmatic, but, you know, somewhat uh, less flexible perception. But, you know, this is Islam, and therefore it doesn't exist or shouldn't exist, certainly. In Iran, it's much more let live, live and let live in terms of attitude, is my experience. Early in the book, you set the stage for what this region, which we might call, uh, includes the Middle East, we'll call uh, West Asia or North Africa, this, this, the, what we now would know as the Islamic world. You set mm -hmm. the stage by saying, in this area, um, before the coming of Islam, it was actually a wash in alcohol. You say that the earliest evidence of wine culture, in fact, going back 9,000 years, was where we would now consider the Middle East. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it's a very important uh, and, and, and really a, an essential uh, element in the whole story. Islam is, of course, kind of a newcomer if you look at the longevity of, of the Middle East. And alcohol as a substance goes back to precisely the area where Islam emerged and, and spread to very quickly. You know, Armenia and Georgia, the Zagros Mountains, western, northwestern Iran, Azerbaijan, eastern Anatolia. I was in Armenia a few weeks ago and I visited a cave where you had these wine vessels 6,000 years old in a tradition that is still alive in the Southern Caucasus. So it is not surprising at all that Islam inherited all kinds of ideas and customs preceding it. And that is just one of them, of course. There is also the Persian and the Persian tradition, the pre-Islamic one, a wash in wine, ritualized wine drinking, wine standing for flowing fire and the radiant sun of Zoroastrianism. There's a Turkic Mongolian tradition coming from Central Asia, hard drinking by warriors on horseback. They brought that to the Islamic world. So it's a really an amalgamation of a number of different traditions coming together with Islam overlaid, attempting to restrict and marginalize right. it, but being not very successful for all these reasons. You don't just wipe out a tradition that is, uh, you know, thousands of years old. And and even the word alcohol is Arabic in, in origin, yes? Yes. Alcohol means, you know, eyeliner, black eyeliner. <laughs> and, and, and even the word booze, the English words booze, the slang word booze, is presumably, we're not 100% sure, but most likely right from booza, which and, is a lightly alcoholic drink that was mostly, you know, comes from Central Asia, was ubiquitous in the Ottoman Empire. So there are all these these connections and references, absolutely. And of course, the person credited with the invention of the process of distillation is is uh, the Iranian Muslim uh, alchemist Razi, right? 
That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So if you said that alcohol is not only present throughout the history of the region and culture, but also plays a, a conspicuous role in the Islamic world, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean by that, that, you know, if you look at the history, and I do so, of course, in the book, because I trace the use, the consumption of alcohol through time, all the way from the time of the Prophet to today, to the, the, the Qatar uh, World Soccer uh, tournament in November, those are my last references, um, you will see that there's an enormous amount of drinking. A lot of it is hidden and marginal and uh, performed in the form of in the form of subterfuge. But uh, almost uh, one of the the elements that strikes one is precisely the excessiveness of the drinking, which of course has to do with the forbidden fruit element. Mm. Something that's forbidden becomes especially attractive. And there's also this notion that, you know, whether you drink one drop or a whole barrel doesn't make any difference. The sin has been committed regardless, so you might as well drink a barrel. And the third element, is precisely again, because Islam, because alcohol, that is red wine, is officially prescribed in Islam, alcohol never became integrated into sort of social etiquette. Mm. You know, the Greek right, to right. the French tradition, so to speak, enlivening a social event, a meal and so forth. It's drinking to get drunk for the most part, which is a stereotype, but I think it's also true. There's so many references, both by Muslims and non-Muslims, to that same pattern throughout time. Yeah, yeah, you talk about that. The the, the intention yeah. is to get wasted. It's not necessarily to... Quickly as possible. Strongly, right, right. Strong as possible booze. Which, by the way, is is still the intention in, in your average British pub on a, a that, Friday well, night. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I'm curious about the mechanics of how this works. So... So mm -hmm. in the first lands that are conquered by Islam, like say Syria and Egypt and Iran, mm -hmm. uh, you talk about how vineyards were to be found everywhere in these places. So, mm -hmm. so how were these new uh, Muslims to mm -hmm. contend with this new reality of a religion that was at odds with their trade, with these vineyards and with their drinking practices? Yeah, well, it's a variegated picture, of course. In some places, the vineyards were ripped up. We know that. And the wine trade withered and, and or, or even disappeared. In other parts, it continued, depending on all kinds of circumstances, soil and fertility and the nature of the population and how fast Islam gained ground. Because that's another myth, of course, that Islam fell from the sky. And then within a decade or two or a century or so, everyone converted to Islam. Nothing is further from the truth. Ottoman Empire into the 20th century, almost 50% of the population was still Greek and Armenian, Christian, with important and, and natural effects on the amount of drinking. Right. Because, of course, the people of the book, Jews, Christians, and honorary people of the book being Zoroastrians in, his, in, his, in Iran, were allowed to manufacture and consume alcohol within their own communities. But, of course, that spilled over into the Muslim communities. In other words, the, the taverns, uh, frequented by common people typically were in Jewish or Zoroastrian or Armenian neighborhoods. And even today in Iran, you know, you have an Armenian friend and that gives you a supply of mm. of booze, you know, without having to pay for black market prices. Right, right. So all these elements play a very important role. And you see this in Iran, for example, you know, the parts where Judaism and, Ar and the Armenians are heavily represented, say Hamadan, and parts of Azerbaijan, the Northwest, Urumiye, and so forth, uh, Zanjan, but also parts of Khorasan, the Kurds were also notorious drinkers. You have plenty of drinking, but
but in some other places it's not so much Shiraz of course sort of stereotypically a city of pleasure you know yes. they called it a lot of drinking rather uninhibited uh, yeah. so it's it's a it's a complex picture like your, your book definitely makes uh, Shiraz look like the place to be in terms of <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of the that's over right. the century so the, a lot of the consumption exactly. yeah. uh, if, if that's your if that's what you're, you're looking for that is uh, right. uh, um, can you do a bit of a um, an Islam 101 with apologies to people out there who are right. would, would already know all of this stuff mm-hmm. I certainly don't I'm not I, I've tried to read the Quran a few times and it's very difficult mm-hmm. uh, for me it, it, Islam is the only major world religion that forbids alcohol consumption yep. so g- give it to us w- simply why what are the reasons uh, the Islamic scriptures deem wine to be prohibited for example right well it's to some extent speculative, of course, because the Quran is not a history book, right? And it's open to interpretation and is oftentimes obscure and is not as sequential as, say, the Bible in terms of narrative structure. You know, it's much more chopped up. Uh, it doesn't have a, you know, chronological sequence. So it's, it's a very difficult book to read you know, and, and interpret for that matter. But if you extract references in various surahs to wine, to alcohol, you will see that in one surah, wine is called a divine gift you know something beneficial right hmm. it doesn't say you have to drink for that reason but but it's there right and then there are other surahs where people are warned and admonished not to drink too much and then ultimately in surah 5 al-ma'idah the, the table wine is prescribed but it's not wine it's khamr which in arabic means red wine hmm. okay and it's left at that and it's forbidden it's prescribed together with gambling uh, and the reason really, and that is explicitly mentioned, is that it detracts from being a good Muslim because you cannot pray properly with a drunken head, right? Which makes sense. You have to have, you know, your faculties in order. Now, so that's one reason. But so, so sorry, uh, so for with that reason, the problem is not the wine, it's the drunkenness, right? That is one argument that has been, you know, brought to bear okay. on that particular uh you know, as, uh, almost as a justification. That means five drops is okay, as long as they don't get drunk. Right. right. But, you know, back and forth. But then, you know, if you look at it historically, to the extent that we can construct a narrative, a historical narrative, both Muslims and non-Muslim exegetes have argued that this seeming jumble, because, you know, Surah 2, there's no chronological sequence here, but it probably means that the Prophet had a problem with his companions getting drunk. So he sort of tightened the rules over time in order to, comp- and then in the mm-hmm. end, he completely forbade it. But the ambiguity is still built in because red wine doesn't mean explicitly, at least, white wine. Does it stand for wine made of fruit, date wine? And, and let alone uh, forms of alcohol that didn't exist in the 7th and 8th century, such as cognac and rake, and let alone champagne. Are they included? Right. Is wine... Um, you know, alcohol uh, sort of reduced to one third of its 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 essence. Is that uh, allowed? And what's the answer to all that? Well, it varies from school Who to knows? school. Right. So you have right. four schools in Islam, and of course, the so-called Hanbalis, who are prevalent in the Arabian Peninsula, for them, absolutely anything, even a drop, is just is completely uh, out of the question. Most schools, and that includes Shiism, by the way follow the same kind of argument with some exceptions for example nabith wine not made from red grapes is up to a point 
uh, perhaps permissible. What is that about? Because, what's the, what's the, the thing with the grapes? Says that even Aisha drank Nabith, so there are some precedents there. The Hanafis, who are prevalent in the Turkish and the Turkic world, are most open-minded about it in terms of, say, accepting alcohol that did not exist in the time at the time of the Prophet. So they're not as literalist as the other ones. Uh, but there is always this notion within strict moderation. So in terms of the traditions that argue that grapes are to be avoided, mm-hmm. the argument would be that, say, fig wine or, or date wine is okay? Well, in some cases. Again, it varies from, from scholar, from exegete to exegete. Well, is there, you know? I need a handbook. How do I, how do I know what I'm allowed to drink where I go from place well, to place? You, 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 that'd be a thousand-page book. And, and because, I mean, this, this tradition of interpretation upon interpretation continues until today. It's conducted online today by pious Muslims, and they ask their muftis, can I use uh, nail polish when it, uh, you know, uh, contains a sprinkle of alcohol? And then, you know, right, the right. answer varies from person to person. So you really get into the, the, min, the minutiae of these things. And and then at the same time, wine itself was said to enhance religious experiences, right? Yes, because, of course, you know, that's the other extreme of religion. That's precisely what makes Islam, in its traditional guise, so capacious. Because you have all this nitpicking. Um, about, you know, can you uh, drink this or that? And no, you can't drink anything on the one hand. And then you have the whole tradition of literature, Sufism, mysticism, where wine is celebrated as enhancing the bond with God, representing beauty, the beauty of the universe as created by God. Uh, and, you know, the beauty of actual nature, you know, there's sort of a, the red wine refracted in sunlight and the beautiful colors it spreads around and and the whole panoply of metaphors and symbolism that you find in glorious Sufi Iranian poetry. Uh, and and that's all there. And that was never repressed. And it's still not repressed because it's so much and so integrally part of Persian and ultimately Islamic culture. Let me pick up on that because that that is one of the ways we obviously know that um, that alcohol and that wine was not banished, that it existed, that it was celebrated, that it was that it was integrally involved in the culture is through the poets and through the the art and and wine has this central role and as you say in the poetry of Hafez and many other Persian poets and uh, you say that, that wine serves as the lifeblood of the re- sure. rich Persian poetic tradition symbolizing earthly pleasure and pleasure and aesthetic refinement and the intoxication that stands for the self-effacing quality of the bond between the mystic and the divine. Tell us a bit about this. How did early P- Persian poets see the place of alcohol, of wine in our lives? Well, I would like to expand that beyond Persian poets, because Arab poets play exactly the same role. Abu Nuwes, of course, there's a bit of discussion. He's a Persian because he was born in uh, Ahuaz. But of course, it's still mostly Arabic speaking. Even today, he wrote mostly in Arabic, so he can legitimately be called an Arab poet. And of course, there are lots of early Arab poets, uh, really from the seventh century. And and, and it's really a sort of a seamless transition from pre-Islam to Islam, who also celebrate wine for the same type of reasons, for the, the life-giving elements, the the expansive notion, the, the sheer beauty, the aestheticism, the sophistication of, of it all, but also, you know, as a metaphor, as a symbolism of, of negating 
the dogmatism is around the the, the intolerance mm. sort of you know expressing one's freedom inner freedom through wine and that's of course where persian poetry reaches absolute you know sublime heights the other element of course and that goes back to the beginning too is kind of ridiculing the cant and hypocrisy of the clergy of the hardliners hafiz is of course fantastic you know he soils the carpet the, the prayer carpet with wine right in order to show how his rendi how in this inner freedom way beyond the strict and and kind of narrow-minded pettifogging uh, adherence to Islam, which is good enough for ordinary people, but you know he's beyond that. And again, he uses wine to to mock the clergy, who themselves, of course, drink wine in unseen moments. You know, all these elements are, are prevalent and present and are celebrated in especially Iranian poetry, but not at the exclusion of Arab and even Turkish poetry, because you have the same traditions that continue over time, less well known. Uh, but just as as prevalent and just as potent, I would say. Can I just ask you about terms? Because you're you you were just talking about wine, and your book in the title of your book you've got wine, but mm. you also talk about alcohol throughout the book. Um, mm. Are we using these words interchangeably, or is there different rules and traditions around, say, vodka that there would be for for wine? Yeah, there is, of course. Um, you know, they all contain alcohol to that extent. We're all talking about the same thing, but we're not in the sense that. In early Islam, we had wine and in various guises, you know, fruit wine, date wine, regular wine, white and red and so forth. And there was this, um, uh, the Turks brought in mare's milk, hummus uh, and so forth. And then you have booze and then ultimately different and new forms of alcohol come in through the West, cognac and champagne. Uh, vodka is fairly old, but not old, not as old as Islam itself. Uh, and with these new forms and these extraneous forms, not indigenous ones, the whole question of what is forbidden, is Raqi forbidden, which didn't exist until the 17th century, becomes an open question for some people, you know, because it's not mentioned in the Quran. It didn't exist at the time. Right. Uh, but ultimately for the hardliners, it doesn't matter. It's about alcohol. When you were talking about poetry, there's also, um, in your book, you talk about the visual arts of the Islamic world also being awash in portrayals of drinking. What do we learn from what we see in the visual arts? Yeah, well, the visual art here, it's important, I think, to make a distinction between the Western and Eastern half of the Islamic world, with the Iranian, the Eastern half, being much more tolerant and capacious and open to the, the visual representation of wine. You know, you have these beautiful illustrated manuscripts of you know, Shah Abbas sort of, you know, making out or oogling a page, a male page who offers him wine, which is actually a rarity because typically the ruler is not depicted mm. in, in, in painting representing wine. But you have all these wonderful images and you've seen them, I'm sure, of Sufis dancing, you know, and, and, and even women uh, dallying around and lovers offering each other wine and so forth. It's ubiquitous in, in the Persian tradition, less so in the Arab painting tradition, which is less strong anyway. And and has always been much more strict about the ban on uh, on graven images than the eastern half of the Islamic world. By the way, you mentioned Shah Abbas. Mm -hmm. the, the, this is in the 17th century, arguably the most celebrated of the Safavid rulers. You You say at one point in the book that this guy consumed alcohol at all hours of the day this was a this much. Was... yes yeah it's reported by more than one observer for throughout the islamic world there's really that 
shahs and sultans and khans were allowed to drink because they sort of inhabited their own moral universe, right? But it should not come at the expense of good statecraft. In other words, they shouldn't become drunk. Now, that was violated left and right because the history, right. you read it, I'm sure, is filled with caliphs from the very beginning. I mean, just absolutely, you know, sloshed all the time. Right. But Chabaz abided by that rule. He drank, but he drank like, you know, every hour a glass, so to speak, but he never went beyond the limit. So he never lost self-control, which is also in part why he's celebrated, because he didn't violate that rule of losing the kind of control that means you cease to be a good, proper ruler taking care of your people. Yes. These these technicalities are, of course, ridiculous, because who's going to be the arbiter of how many cups you could have before you, I know that. you're losing control? That, Other than the bartender times. down the street who says you're yeah, cut off, that's buddy. That's where the yeah. scientific inquiry comes in, and that's a matter of modern times, of course. But when you mention yeah. these, the kings and their courtiers, you know, uh, drinking and all that, at the same time, Several sultans and shahs throughout these, you know, these centuries tried to ban alcohol. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you about the 20th century in a moment, uh, and and in fact the 21st century. But but is it fair to say? I mean, we learned certainly in North America from the 1920s, and some people would argue we learned this with weed too and stuff that prohibition doesn't work. Is it fair to say that none of these shahs and sultans in any of the, these parts of the Islamic world were ever particularly successful in ridding the society of alcohol? Yeah, I think you can say that as a general statement. You know, attempts were made. It's not as though that everyone drank and it was just, you know, a merry uh, society and no one cared. Typically, you know, drinking was allowed, permitted to the elite, the upper classes, you know, because they could hold their liquor, they could handle it, whereas the lower, the middling uh, segments of population then and now typically never touched alcohol, you know. And then, of course, uh, so were lower castes, you know, the the down and out, because they were irredeemable. You know what I mean? It was like Britain in the 18th century with gin. You know, the, the toffs, the, the, the elite could handle their, their liquor. Besides, it usually and almost exclusively took place within the confines of the private mansion, right? And, you know, ordinary people, they would get drunk and, you know, they could be contained up to a point and there were brawls and riots and so forth. Uh, but, you know, they were irredeemable. So, you know, the, the only thing you could do would contain. And so there's something similar there. There's a real class distinction, um, you know, and there was a lot of drinking on the part of the courts with the boon companions and so forth. But that doesn't mean that one could ignore the Islamic law. It was invoked periodically. And, and there are a couple of sort of moments when you see this happen. When a Shah or a Sultan comes to power, he has to establish his credentials as a mm. good Islamic ruler. So he, he, he issues a, a ban, right? But it's kind of ritualistic. You know, it's pro forma in a way. You know, right. it's performative. And then it doesn't last. It's, you know, because, of course, we're also dealing with states that have far less capacious monitoring and, and controlling mechanisms at their disposal. You know, when I mean, the, the capacity of a modern state to control its population is infinitely greater mm. than used to be the case until far into the 19th century. So there's that element. Right, right. Then there was, so it, it dissipated, you know, it was never really written up, in a, if, even if it was in a law, you know, it was violated and then it sort of disappeared. But there was also the fiscal element, almost invariably. Wine, alcohol brought in a lot of tax revenue. It's the eternal problem. Look at cigarettes today. 
governments are inclined to ban cigarettes at the same time they depend on the tax revenue right, right. so it's a dilemma right so there was always that element so shah sultans would ban alcohol upon coming to power during um you know on at the onset of a campaign sort of seeking uh, the good graces of the heavens so to speak points at, uh, at old age you know preparing for the end repenting toba toba mm -hmm. in persian very important element and then finally of course the idea that um, you know uh, during uh, calamities you know natural disasters plagues uh, locusts famine you know you look for uh, a culprit and you find them in the jews or you know minorities typically and then of course wine is uh, oftentimes singled out as the real culprit and so you get a ban but they never last true on the topic of the minorities you just mentioned um, mm -hmm. I tried to do an unscientific study of my own over the last couple of days as I was preparing for this, asking people, especially some of our team members, some others that I know who've come from Iran, say within the last 10 years, you know, what did you see? What was the relationship with alcohol? Where, you know, first of all, I mean, we'll get to, again, the 21st century in a moment, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it was amazing that all of them said, you know, alcohol is everywhere if you want it, you know, in, in Iran. But they said uh, everybody has an Armenian person that, that, that they know, uh, which you said a few moments ago. And and it occurs to me that this is probably, I mean, this is the 21st century, but this is something that, you know, for hundreds of years has kind of been the case. If I could ask you, I mean, is it fair to say that for most of, say, the last five, 600 years, the cultivation, the production, the manufacturing, or or the distribution has been the work of non-Muslims in the country who the Muslims access to get the, the alcohol? Is that the way it works? For the most part, not exclusively, absolutely for most. I've known of statistics for, 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 for pre and early modern times, but definitely, you know, I already mentioned the, the regions, the towns where Christians, Armenians, in the case of Iran, Zoroastrians were prevalent, there was more wine drinking because, you know, again, they were not allowed to sell, but that's exactly what happened typically, right? Uh, and so the reason, for example, uh, if you wanted to go get your wine in Isfahan, you crossed the river to Zayan, the route, you went to Nudulfa, right? And, and there were excursions being held by Muslims, uh, and uh, Armenians were also given to drinking quite quite frequently. So, yeah, there is an element and that there's nothing modern about it. Yeah, you, you had your Armenian to go to. Of course, the Armenians and the Greeks in the uh, Ottoman Empire, they also played a double role because they were also easy scapegoats. Mm. So they're quite vulnerable. Right. 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 It was all, you know, look the other way. Don't ask, don't tell. Uh, marginal and so forth. And as long as it and, and this is really the crucial issue. In pre-modern times, early modern times, until quite recently, and in a way, depending on the region and the country still today, alcohol was kind of allowed, connived at, as long as it didn't disturb the social order. So, you know, keep a low profile, keep it indoors, go to the Armenian bar, uh, come out late at night so we don't have to see you, you know, all these mechanisms. But, you know, the, the position of these, of these minorities was of course precarious because they would be the first thing be singled out for a, a, a mob riled up by the clergy in the late 19th century. I give a couple of examples in the book, who then start smashing the taverns of yeah. Armenians, the same taverns they used to frequent themselves, of course. Did what happens in the 19th century? I mean, if you, again, I I know we're your your book is quite comprehensive and we're zooming through it here, but uh, but with the coming of the Ottoman Empire and of course the Qajar era. Um, mm -hmm. Alcohol drinking consumption increases. 
Um, is that a is that a measure that Islam has less dominance, or is it just people are figuring out more ways to get the stuff, to make the <clears throat> stuff, to you know, drink the stuff? I'm not sure if alcohol consumption increases in sheer volume. It's hard to tell, and certainly no statistics are available. But it becomes more visible, certainly, you know, and it's all under the influence in one way or another of the European intrusion, the Western intrusion. It comes in the form of, you know, diplomacy, war, you know, Napoleon invading uh, Egypt uh, and France invading uh, Algeria in 1830 uh, and in the form of economic uh, control. Uh, and monopolization and so forth. Uh, and so on the other side, it comes in the form of the Sultan beginning to leave his palace in the early 19th century under the influence of European models, you know, czars and, and uh, you know, dukes and, and emperors going around on going on sort of controlled excursions, boat rides and so forth. So Mahmoud II does the same in Istanbul, comes out of his palace. The elite, the new bureaucratic elite, takes over from the Janissaries, hardcore traditional drinkers who are eliminated in 1826. This new elite, they become sort of European Europe lovers. You know, they, they take on, they adopt the, the ways and means of Europe, both sartorially in terms of clothing, but also in terms of habits, especially drinking habits. They love champagne, bubbly, you know, effervescence. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not even seen as alcohol. It's like lemonade. You know what I mean? That's literally what some of the cler clerics uh, see it as, as well. And so the Sultan gingerly begins to approach this. He goes on boat rides. He tastes a little bit of porter or sherry and loves it, orders 10 bottles and so forth. Uh, so you, the things open up. And then in the course of the century, radical change takes place. Infrastructurally, the railroad comes to Istanbul direct from Europe. Electrical lights is introduced. Hotels are set up, Western-style mm. hotels. So the whole panoply of opportunities are open the hold of islam on the on the elites diminishes so all this leads to greater certainly visibility i'm not even sure consumption and and new forms iran is a little different first of all it's a bit later but iran is much more isolated mm. structurally and logistically than the ottoman empire you know, istanbul was a five-day boat ride away from marseille right, iran right. you had to go around the cape right of course until the building of the suez canal a world of difference right so it comes later the distances are much greater much more desert to be crossed uh stronger hold of the clergy which does play a role a little bit and then the other thing very interesting and very importantly is that as opposed to the ottoman sultan who begins to leave his palace the Qajars sort of retreat into their palaces. See, Safavid drinking was open, hmm. was kind of as razmubazm, you know, hard drinking and hard, hard, hard fighting and hard feasting tradition, right? Out in the open, you know, the steppe warfare. Uh, the Safavids do that because they have religious credentials. They establish, they, after all, they establish the Shi'i faith, the 12 or Shi'i faith as their state religion. The Qajars lack that legitimacy. So they cannot continue that tradition. They retreat into the palace. They sober up to some extent. Um, and then, you know, you see this with Nas Nasruddin Chai. I think I give a couple of examples. He drinks, but it's become sort of a Frenchified European type of, mm. you know, two glasses of Bordeaux over wine mm. or to calm his nerves before executions that he has to watch. So it's a world away from this, you know, go all out and being completely flat. For, for days on end. 
that tradition continues in the provinces in Iran, and I pointed out too. You have these sort of traditional provincial rulers, governors, especially Kurds and Khorasan, and they're just you know hammered days on end. That's continuation of what I call traditional drinking. And tell tell me about the different kinds of drinks that emerge from different regions, from different countries. You you talked about it a little earlier, um, outside of the scope of red wine. You know, like rocky is something that emerges from in Turkey, um, and right. in Iran there's arak. What what is arak? Well, it's kind of a form of vodka. You know, um, I, I'm not even quite sure what the ingredients are, quite frankly. But that becomes kind of the Iraq Iranian rake becomes Arak, the same quality, the same potency, uh, the same uh, popularity, because you get drunk very fast. Uh, and is that 20th original... century? Is that the 20th century? Well, where... no, vodka actually is introduced from Russia already in 16th, 17th century. It's part of gifts to the Shah. Mm. Lots of uh, barrels of vodka are being brought from Moscow, from Muscovy in the 16th and 17th century. So, and I'm not quite sure how that transfers or translates into Arak over time. Uh, but it's kind of a, you know, that it's it's the, the, the Iranian variant of rake, if you will. It's not made from um, uh, grapes. It's made from, what is it, barley or something like that. I forget the, the technicalities of that. You, you do say that in Iran, under Pahlavi rule and under Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, that uh, after the 1940s, because Reza Shah has an interesting, uh, um, even though he takes after Ataturk, he has an interesting issue with alcohol, whereas Ataturk open th opens things up in Turkey. But after the 1940s, alcohol sales and consumption grow alongside modernization in Iran. Yes. And I guess by the 1970s, is the main alcoholic drink Adak then that is that is most available or or is red wine everywhere as well? Yeah, that depends on class. You know, for the traditional Luti, Arak was the, the drink of choice, right? And for the sort of the lower classes in general, I would argue, you know, the Lalazar uh, uh, in district was all about Arak, you know, cabarets and performances and so forth. I remember going there. It was all Arak. Uh, but, you know, the sort of the new... The Focoli, the Frenchified classes, took to French wine. And the more Americanized, later ones, young people, they took to whiskey, you know, sitting at the Hilton Hotel or, you know, any of these new fancy hotels. So, again, I think you have to differentiate it a little bit between um, the uh, between classes. I remember the street where I lived, Riawan of Farbaidin, close to university. Uh, there was a, a liquor store, and I really regret I never took a picture of it because it was all, you know, raised to the ground and disappeared. Right. And I can't even find pictures of these places. And it was kind of dark and dank. It was on a corner, but it was kind of, you know, entering a forbidden space. And and it was, you know, kind of an unsavory place where you would buy your pint CD of Arak, right? This, you know, pint-sized bottle. Uh, and the people who went there were not exactly the elites, uh, to, to put it that way. What was the, I mean, you talked about the, that, whatever that place was that being raised to the ground, being destroyed after, presumably after 1979. What, mm -hmm. what was the impact of the 1979 Islamic revolution on alcohol in Iran? Well, it drove it underground, of course, because, you know, the Islamic Republic, after some hesitancy, uh, took a combat uh, approach to, to alcohol you know, with very dramatic examples of wine born, being poured out into the gutters of these big international hotels. I give examples of that. 
uh, and smashing of, um, of of wine stores and and the restaurants and so forth. And sorry, sorry. Can I, can I can I ask you about that? Because you have a photo yeah. in your book of these uh, revolutionaries. It's so jarring. You know, you, yeah. you you know about these things if you've studied the revolution and, and we talked about it so much. But you still see a right. photo like this and go, "Holy shit!" You, these these guys revolutionaries emptying bottles during the 1979 revolution. I, I, I yeah. guess this is to say. There's a at this point a renaissance in equating alcohol with Western consumption and materialism. Is yeah, that the idea? Of course, alcohol becomes symbolic. I mean, it's the same in 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 Egypt in 1952 with Black um, uh, what is it Saturday? You know, the revolt that preceded the uh, Palace Revolution that brought Nasser to power. You know, when thousands of liquor stores and cabarets and you know casinos on the Pyramid Road were smashed, uh, all the symbols of British and Jewish presence. And then included all the alcohol purveying uh, venues, the same thing, because, yes, alcohol was always kind of associated with Christianity in Islam. Right. And I give some examples of that without necessarily working it out. But it became really an emblem of Western decadence and 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 debauchery, not just in Iran, but in, in as part of the wave of, quote unquote, fundamentalism that has mm. coursed through the Middle East uh, since 1928, 29, Muslim brothers in Egypt. It's like women and and the and the head cover and and alcohol are the two emblems, the two symbols right. par excellence uh, that have to be extirpated, that have to be completely destroyed, in order to present yourself as a good Muslim. Yeah. Which then creates all kinds of new uh, dilemmas, of course. And at one point in the book, you say, I want to quote you. You say, "Modern Muslim fundamentalists." exclusively focus on the textual dimensions of Islam yeah, sure. as if they had inherited colonialism's ignorance of the religion's history of diversity mm -hmm. and tolerance. Right. Is this, um, Rudy, is this to suggest the the current leaders of, of say, say, the Islamic Republic have a more draconian take on alcohol than for most of our history after the coming yes. of Islam? Yeah, I would argue that. Of course, there were periods, don't get me wrong, I don't say that you know, it was all uh, happy-go-lucky and everyone could just drink and no one was bothered. Not at all. There were these episodes of intervention and bans were sometimes enforced and sometimes very harshly. People were, you know, 80 lashes, executed. Uh, you know, there was wholesale terror uh, in uh, various periods all over the place. So it's not simply a story of... Uh, you know, I, I don't romanticize. That's the that's and I think I said it explicitly, I think, in my introduction as well. Uh, but it is definitely true. The Islamic Republic has, you know, singled out certain elements and engaged in a grade of amnesia with regard to uh, the history of alcohol in, in Iran, historically speaking. Of course, the problem is, you know, whereas Abu Nawas and other you know Arab popes have been kind of expurgated from the curriculum in the Arab world, Hafiz and Hayyam and the rest of it loom too large and are too important and component of Persian culture to be even curtailed. They have made attempts, but it's you know doomed to fail. So in that sense, you know they're kind of stuck with that tradition because it's part and parcel of you know what it means to be Iranian even acknowledged by all but the most hardline clerics in modern Iran yes and the, the contradictions abound on so many levels I mean obviously there's the one big contradiction that we stated at the beginning the paradox of of Islam being uh, of alcohol being forbidden but alcohol being, being everywhere but uh, also in terms of the way any penalties or any um, 
the way the state, say in the case of the Islamic Republic, handles this is all over the place. I mean, it's it's like a lot a lot of the other things we've learned from from parts of the Middle East and Iran these days, unfortunately. But uh, just doing a straw poll again of of some of the people who work at Rook and some of our friends, you know. Almost everybody was saying, yeah, sure, there's these parties and there's alcohol and everybody knows somebody where they're going to get it, whatever. And then somebody was saying, yeah, I have a friend who got um, put in jail, you know, got an 11 year jail sentence because he had some wine in his house, you know, and he was he was I don't know if he was making the wine or he was. And how you make heads or tails of this kind of discrepancy and how the, the penalization is meted out. Did you learn anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I visited Iran a couple of times in the last few years, and it's totally true. It's all over the place. I mean, everyone makes wine in their own bathtub, and some of it's quite good, by the way. Uh, or you get it from your Armenian friend or, you know, your Saki, the bake who delivers it on the back of the scooter, right? Or you get it, you know, smuggled over the mountains from Iraq, uh, which is very expensive. Um, and so the state, of course, knows all about this and has this you know, it, yeah, it's all over the place. It has a very confused and confusing attitude. It's part deterrence and it's part harm reduction because there's A&A uh, in Iran all over the place and, and sponsored by the state. So it, it sort of bespeaks um, confusion and an inability to really come to terms with the thing. And I think it ultimately, again, goes back to you, they cannot acknowledge it. You know, that's that's where Islam mm. is always stuck. It's in the Quran. You cannot deny it. You cannot abolish. You cannot, you know, turn it into sort of a metaphorical verse, as Christians have done with most parts of the Bible, you know. Uh, so you're always brought back to that point, and at the same time, you have to deal with the modern world and youth culture, and 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 sort of global party culture. Right. And of course, you all know, as we all know, Iranians are the best party animals in the world. So you you go to the best parties in the world, going to Iran. Right. And and then, of course, you know, there's all this ambiguity. You pay off the pause on and, you know, it's limited to keep the dead number of decibels right. down. It's OK. But then again, you're never sure. And so, it's not unique to Iran. These contradictions, I remember not. earlier in the year being in Dubai and right. being in a, in a in a place in a restaurant or, you know, and, and they said and they said I, I had ordered a drink and they said, oh, you, you can't you don't have alcohol. You know, it's, it's not allowed here. And I, and I thought, well, two streets away, I was, you know, I just sure. got a drink yeah. the other day. So, and I, I mean, can't make heads or tails of it. You pay $18, it. you pay $18 for a glass. So there's all the, also that deterrence. That's how Erdogan in Turkey has dealt with it. You know, you, you price it out of existence for ordinary people. I was going to mention Erdogan because you 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 do talk about him in the book as well. And, and there's an increasing campaign against alcohol uh, from him and, and his administration in the 21st century now as well in Turkey, right? Yes. Yeah. And it comes in all kinds of forms. Um, ever since he's become president, he tried already when he was mayor of Istanbul in the late 1990s, but he's really gone all out to, in the 21st century, mostly by, you know, with fiscal means, you know, literally pricing it out of existence by raising the taxes to absurd heights. You know, a bottle is now, you know, like $25 of cheap Raki and chop Raki is by definition cheap, which means with a normal income in Turkey, middle class, I mean, you can buy like 15 bottles a month and that's it, right? And then also he has engaged in this policy of, you know, zoning, you know, concentrating wine drinking mostly for tourists in tourist zones in Izmir and Istanbul, Kushadesi and so forth, Antalya, uh, or relegating wine purveying um, but, but, uh, 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 pavilions, they call them in Turkey, it comes from the French, 
become sort of cheap drinking venues to highways between cities, out of sight, in other words. Um, and then, you know, uh, not allowing it after sale after 10 o'clock, uh, prohibiting it during Ramadan, you know, and so forth. The variety of measures. Rudy, you mentioned the proliferation of homemade wines, of people making wine in their bathtub, you said, in, in Iran. That, that's been happening for a long time, right? I mean, that's, that's something that, yes. that's not well, new. Well, certainly since the revolution. Oh. Uh, and people have become very sophisticated about it. Well, you know, and uh, when and the you... harvest comes in, in September, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to get uh, grapes because they, they all get bought up by people. To, to turn into homemade wine. But when you say some of it's quite good, I don't doubt that. At the same time, we're hearing these reports of these people dying in Iran because they mm. tried to make homemade wine and, and you know, they're using the wrong stuff or it's poisoned or, or I mean, um, what, how do we make sense of that? Well, I get the impression, I'm not 100% sure about that, but from reading these articles this week and last week, that it is precisely the stuff delivered by the pakes of uncertain provenance that is suspect and that that's one reason why people have begun to concentrate or actually tell their friends when they offer their wine this is homemade it's safe uh, because i know what the what ingredients went into it but again i'm not quite sure how that works and of course yeah this lethal elements of meth methanol alcohol has been going on for actually for a couple of years now i gave examples from 2017 and 18 hundreds of people killed so it's flared up again uh and but it's a perennial problem of course yes where do you before i let you go and i thank you so much for the time today and and, and for uh for, for writing this book that uh i hope people um who have any interest in this area check out because it's 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 wondrous and it's quite um as i say comprehensive angels tapping at the wine shop's door um where do you see things going? I mean, there's there's an interesting stat you throw in at some point in the book, and you don't really explore it too much, but you say, whereas alcohol intake in most European countries is declining, in the mm -hmm. Islamic world, it went up by 25% right. between 2005 and 2010. Now, that's 10 years ago, but still, is the Middle East um, increasingly a serious growth market for wine and beer? Well, as so far, and again, it depends on the country, and it varies from country to country, of course, in terms of strictures. Afghanistan is not a growth market at the moment, to put it simply, right? right. Uh, but Morocco, North Africa is. Um, and so it's hard to tell. You know, there are certain tendencies that are premised on continued growth and continued tourism and so forth that speak to continued growth. But at the same time, you know, as we all know, the future is totally unpredictable. The, no one predicted the Iranian revolution and wine and alcohol seemed to be on the upswing. And the Shah introduced new wines and wanted to latch on to, you know, sort of sophisticated modern wine culture and so forth. Uh, on the other, Saudi Arabia is loosening up. It's trying to become an events culture. So who knows what M <laughs> MBS has in mind? Right, right. You know, he could allow zones. And I think it's actually quite likely. But then again, you have an intensely conservative populace to deal with, so the backlash may also come. So I'm not going to predict anything other we, than it will remain complex. And and the, the dilemma, uh, to as long as Islam remains the, the, the dominant religion and as long as uh, Muslims look towards a text for guidance, that, that awkwardness, that dilemma will always be there. Uh, yes, I was going to say, you... 
you conclude the book by saying the Islamic world is still in its own process, your words, of decolonization when it comes to alcohol and drinking practices. Just tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, no, I, I will do that by quoting, and I love this. I don't know if you you know Kamal Daoud. He's Francophone, Algerian, a journalist, so. literateur. It's fantastic. You should read him. Okay. He's also been translated to English in case your, your French isn't good. Um, beautiful writing, you know, very critical and expansive and humanitarian. And I'll quote what he says, okay, by way of perhaps conclusion and certainly answer to your question. He says... He says it best when he laments that the straitjacket that his Arabness imposes on him for preventing him from discovering himself, from embracing not just his Muslim identity, but also his Roman and Ottoman past, acknowledged the Spanish, Christian, and Jewish influence on the land of his birth and residence, Algeria, which even while facing the sea, finds it hard to retrieve its Mediterranean identity. Hmm. And I think that really sums it up. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It was fun to be invited and to be able to hold forth on this topic. It's wonderful. Thank Congratulations you so on this book. You know you have to get you're going to have to keep writing books so that I can keep bringing you back because <laughs> I enjoy these conversations so much. I'll try. I'll try. No promise, but I'll try. Doctor Rudy Matze, thank you, and um, to be continued. Chodafis. Chodafis shalom. Bye bye. Bye bye. This is Rook episode 273, Drinking in Iran. Microphones are back on with Smart Pega here in the studio and Captain Reza, Hello. the great, our dear friend and um, uh, director of the show for the first two and a half years of Rook. What were your, let me start with you, Reza. What hey. what were your impressions uh, listening back to, we listening to Dr. Rudy there. Well, I tell you this, man. I want to move back to Shiraz after listening to. <laughs> it's all history. Shiraz. Everything's I know, here. right? It sounds right like a with you, lot yeah. of fun, <laughs> and I uh, couldn't be like. It's so interesting to like get a back backstory of what you've witnessed in a like in in real in real life, yeah. like uh, experienced it in the flesh. Uh, it's very. It's, it's everything he said. Like to the T was was accurate and then it's just so fascinating to to see the psychological roots of what we were, we were just talking about like literally like earlier before the interview and um i'm fascinated and yes Gian john i know you want me to read this book i will i will oh. i know you love it oh. driving me crazy it would I be will. nice for you to read a book <laughs> it would be a <laughs> uh, an interesting experiment to, you know a book <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you must. If you must know, I've read several, <laughs> several books. Did, what did you think of the, the part where we, he's talking about um, towards the end there, where we're talking about how the current situation in a place like Iran is actually more conservative. Mm -hmm. You know the colonial ignorance, like taking Islam and going even yeah. way further in a direction that that it has been for hundreds of years. I, I mean, it's not something new to us. We know that, but but I, I I think I truly, especially after listening to 
uh, uh, this interview, uh, I truly believe that um, uh, alcohol and every and and all these elements that um, essentially the Islamic uh, r regime of Iran, I'd say, mm -hmm. a place like that, it, it opposes extreme uh, rules, uh, is God-given gift to them. Because if these tools didn't exist, they wouldn't be able to uh, use an access to really control the narrative in terms of monetary uh, benefits where they control the underground. Oh, it's a grift. I truly you see it think as a way. So. They, they, I believe it, yeah. They use the forbidding of alcohol to be involved in the alcohol trade. Exactly. And uh, Is I, the regime involved? Oh, I guess that's a stupid question. Right? Well, that's it. it's I exactly. Mean, their, their goons are, because it's winning on both sides. It's uh, having the face of a, a you know, clean society by their phony standards, definitions, yeah. of course. And then, but on the other hand, also realizing, because they know they're not stupid. They know that you can't like go against them when everybody is a customer. It's just smart to 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 capitalize. So they do that the way so they do. So how do, do they then, make money? Because I mean, they can't tax. So it for way. instance, I don't know if you're up to date uh, about the current um, poisoning, yeah. alcohol poisoning in Iran. That Mentioned is kind of a serial poisoning. Yeah. So the fact that something like this is so prevalent that hits the news, that means the gang involved in it. And again, this is not me talking like out of my bottom, but <laughs> based on things I've heard on the news and analysis, that it seems like there is there are bigger hands at play, that they allow such a huge import of um, alcohol, essentially, because this is not all uh, homemade alcohol that was poisoning. This is actual imported whiskey and oh, I thought it was the Jack Daniels. No, no, no. In fact, the homemade ones, people are now retrieving to like like they're trying to get more home, get their hands go on more homemade uh, stuff. Yeah. Go back to more homemade stuff because it's safer. Hmm. Essentially, they're, they're, everybody's trying to find an Armenian dealer now, hmm. as opposed to get their hands on like the, the highest Jack Daniel that came from Turkey, because that's the stuff that, um, yeah, that is poison. So, what what did you make of the uh, of the conversation? I was just confused. There were so many like rules that you can drink, but then you can't, and you can drink but not get drunk and then there's grapes <laughs> and this <laughs> and that and I was like what is happening here yeah. um, I was surprised and a little bit confused with that but there was a couple of things that I was really I had no idea like the the word alcohol or booze and the origin of those words Arabic? Yeah, yeah I had no idea um, the social integration that we talked about at the top of the show and then also um, Rudy mentioned was really really interesting to what me. What do you mean by the social integration? So the the lack of social integration uh. of alcohol. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then one thing that um, I thought was surprising, but also not, was the whole the Islamic Republic and like Reza was saying, the way that they're trying to be so extra about the fact that there should be no alcohol and everything else, and yet it's the most we've ever seen in Iran, mm -hmm. right? So that was, I mean, again, not surprising, but it was an interesting uh, part of the conversation for sure. Well, the first thing you said in terms of, it definitely is if there's a, if there's a through line, it's, the, it's about contradiction, that the mm -hmm. contradictions are, are so, the country's contradictions are so rich that you can't even get one narrative on what Islam says about yes. alcohol. Yeah. There's, you know, a bunch of different, he spends some of the book and he, he did in this interview talking about how there's a few different interpretations mm -hmm. of the, the, the Quran, the Quran saying, for example, um, like you said, you know, it's all about drunkenness. So if you don't, 
you can drink, but just but don't drink too much. Yeah. So then the alcohol shouldn't be the problem. And then there's others that it's about it's, it's if it's the grape or you know depending on which the alcohol is yeah. or uh, and you sort of see that reflected in in the confused way it's all dealt with. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we did talk about a little bit about some of the other places in the world that like I was talking about being in Dubai and mm-hmm. and you you don't know where in Dubai I don't know I mean sure the people who live there or know but right. but that there's some places in the in the city where you know they look at you weird if you ask for a drink and alcohol mm. there's no alcohol and there's other places that you know where there's a lot of drinking and and so it is quite confusing and to me the one revelation which is very simple I suppose you could look it up on the internet or something but to learn that uh, Islam, it also just makes sense when you think about it, but Islam is the only major religion that forbids mm-hmm. alcohol. Yeah. And that in fact alcohol is deeply embedded in the traditions, mm-hmm. cultures of other major religions. Think about it, right? Yeah, and another thing that is a li- makes like adds to the confusion is the conviction in everything they say. Because I haven't, t- <laughs> truth be told, like read the thing, but based on what he's saying, it's like, yes, you could drink, but don't get drunk right okay so it's very like definitive and hey but if <laughs> like it just continues it's like mm-hmm. a cycle if you drink if you, you but no alcohol in it but if it's alcohol it's it's it just sounds like there's no gray even the gray area it's like this is 100 percent uncertain it's yeah like it's the conviction i think adds to the uncertainty and then people who are they have the tendency to be a little bit on the extreme side they just they interpret it however mm-hmm. they want to in their own like way, right? Extremes. The other thing was um, when when um, <laughs> you guys were talking about excessiveness and going into how excessive drinking and things yeah. like that. And I think there was something that Rudy mentioned about well, if you're gonna sin, then one drop is a sin, yeah. and so is you might know, as well go for exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, drink the whole barrel. That's yeah. what. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. Too. The governing philosophy yeah. is exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Why just have one drink if you're gonna have That's the right. drink? Uh, right. Go for it. Um, <laughs> he did talk about how there was in the book uh, I, I, I mentioned it, and that there's these. Um, Famously, these leaders in it, like Shah Abbas, mm-hmm. who was constantly drinking. <laughs> like again, it's like yeah, it it's really like a funny, fun guy. you know. Oh I mean, it's Shah like Abbas. it's like um, <laughs> forbidding homosexuality and being publicly out or something. Yeah. It's like how you know how these contradictions um, play themselves out. It's where they, the, they want to have it both ways. That's the thing because mm-hmm. they're smart enough to know that they can't go against the public. But on the other hand, they they got it. They got it. They got a crowd to appease. But you know what else? Prohibition never works. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's. We learned it over and over again. Right. Learned it in the, in North America in the you know yeah. early part of the 20th century. It just doesn't work. It didn't yeah. work with cannabis with marijuana nope. here and mm-hmm. nope. and you know I mean it and it it just creates a culture of um, perhaps. More interesting. I think it Prohib- feeds it actually. I think it yeah. fuels it yeah. more than anything else. You and always anything. Want what's prohib- yeah, exactly. Like even like head covering, hijab, which was the cause of this whole like uh, revolution that started uh, last year. It's the force, the force to do anything, mm-hmm. anything, literally anything. The, I, you have to do it. Why? Hmm. Like it give me a solid reason, you know, and all the reasons are all debatable. They're all for debate. So again, the the contradictions of 
of the way we are perceived. That's why I started the interview with like, what do you think the perceptions are of the Islamic world? The contradictions of the way Iranians are perceived versus what oh, Iranians know. If you ask the, the, the go, go up to the average Iranian in Toronto and say, you know, is it forbidden in Islam back in, the, in Iran? They'll sort of go, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody listens to that stuff, you yeah. know, like, uh, and yet, if you know, for non-Iranians mm -hmm. who who aren't familiar, they would just assume yeah. that oh, this is a. I mean, it's certainly a place you can't get a, a drink at a bar, you yeah. know. And on what you, bar? You know what's interesting? <laughs> I remember every time I say bar, you yeah, guys always exactly. laugh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You guys bar. meet up at the bar in uh, Shiraz. <laughs> what bar? What are you talking about? It was so heartbreaking to hear uh, when he said that there was this liquor place uh, around mm. the corner where he lived, and he forgot to take a picture of it. Now it doesn't exist anymore. That guy, I kind of feel for that guy. But you know what? <laughs> he, I didn't actually to ask him about it, but there's a point, point in the book where he's talking about his own experience. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, he was in Iran, and, mm -hmm. and he went back a few times after the revolution. And I think after the revolution, like this is like 2015 or something, he's in Iran. I can't remember what it was. It was like for some conference or something, and he goes he goes there, and he, it's like an event. like It's like a but you know private sort of event. And... Uh, and he goes up and and he says, uh, yeah, "Can I get um, like some a tea or something?" And the guy says, "Oh, you don't you don't you don't want a drink?" And he goes, uh, uh, "Well, no." I and kind of looks around and goes, oh, "Oh, can I get a drink here?" And the guy goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you what do you want?" And he goes, "What?" <laughs> I don't know. Do I guess uh, <laughs> this is like a story in the book. I just tells like it's like I'm telling a joke, but this it's, it's like a, he goes, uh, "Well, uh, well, he's kind of trying to think of like what's easy, you know." He right. goes, uh, uh, a beer would a beer be okay and the guy goes uh yeah 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 what, what kind of beer oh my <laughs> and he goes God, uh, and he me. goes uh um like a a german beer and he goes yeah, yeah which kind oh my god <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> which is kind this of the point great. right yeah. it's like uh, you could get whatever you want yeah. in iran yeah. it's just That's a matter true. of uh being in the in that you know doing it the right way yeah when you were saying the perceptions i was thinking you know a great example of that would be qatar what we just saw with right. the world cup right, and everything right. right with everyone thinking you know well how are people gonna drink and how are people and it was just such a big question and yet readily available if you need it to well be. at first it wasn't and then it was i mean <laughs> even that was all screwed up right again con <clears throat> again contradictions but yeah i think it was yeah. from the get-go you could have gotten it all right. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys think out there about this uh, this topic. If you have any personal experiences and or if you want to address this paradox or if you think we're all wrong and want to assert that, that's also uh, welcome. Info at rookmedia.com or post on any of our platforms. Info at rookmedia.com is our email address. Before we end up, I wanted to do a, a roundup. We usually do it earlier in the show, but um, I wanted to get to the topic and get to, to Dr. Mate. Um, Pega, Reza's here as well, and we'll let's do a little bit of a roundup on what's been going on the last few days. So, take it away. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the biggest things on a lot of Iranians' minds is this video or viral kind of live stream that uh, this young theater actor by the name of Mohammad Sadiqi shared on Instagram, and it was essentially a video or a stream of him being arrested. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, he Mohammad Sadiqi is a young actor. He's been quite vocal the last little while. Is he is he well known? Do people know his mm, work? No, no. I, I didn't know him. know him prior to this video, honestly. But I mean, when I was looking into this um, for the roundup, I was looking at his Instagram. I was trying to find his Instagram, and I was looking on Twitter, and he's got a fair following. I mm. mean, I don't know if it's because of this video now or if it was prior to it, but 
Anyhow, um, for anyone who hasn't seen the video, um, he's expressing his concern, I guess, for um, the morality police and what they're doing with young women in Iran. And as he's saying this, I guess the regime is seeing his post, and so they come mm. to his house. Right. And then w- he ends up switching to live on Instagram, and you can actually hear them pounding at the door, and then subsequently they enter the house, and he tries to run away, and it becomes this just chaotic, dramatic Same. escape wow. um, to the point where there's a part where he's hanging out the window, and he's you know he's ready to basically jump out the window and yet not be taken away by by the police um ultimately they do end up arresting him and unfortunately we have not heard anything since yeah it, it got a lot of attention and i i was wondering why because he's not a huge star mm-hmm. or something but it, it probably is because we're not used to now we've seen a bunch of video yeah. uh we've seen things atrocities that take place in the streets or things like that we're not used to seeing a live stream we've right? always seen it after the fact and it's been kind of news or we've heard it from people or we've seen photos and it's it's always been at least within a couple of hours of that event taking place this was in the moment yeah. you, you were seeing it live and i don't think we've ever experienced anything like that in the last 10 months yeah and another thing that's another thing and you've always heard about it but since last year a lot of uh, these mysteries that you you didn't know whether mm-hmm. they were myths or you had to you, you could really believe it like did they actually torture you that bad did they actually did that to right, women right. really like came like true like you, you we realized that yeah it was more than true mm-hmm. so this is like another essentially testament to yeah. with lo- like they break into your house if you say the wrong thing and uh, they would arrest you. You're right. Watching a yeah, live arrest on video is not open to interpretation. Exactly. We, we see what's <laughs> it happening literally there. literally happened. Yeah. What else you got, Pega? Um, there was uh, news of another, I guess, activist, um, Sepide Qolian. So mm. she's um, an, an activist journalist who's currently serving a two-year sentence um, for chanting against the Supreme Leader and, of course, not wearing hijab. So she was actually supposed to have a day in court yesterday. Um, and there was some back and forth about this and she decided to actually represent herself and was saying, you know, I'm more than willing to represent myself and have my day in court and I want it to be public. Um, and so, you know, court was in session, judge was there, everything was ready. And then there was all this commotion and waiting and back and forth. And eventually her court date got canceled Mm. or postponed rather. And so the reason for that we now have found out is because she refused to wear a hijab to enter the court. Mm. Um, so even while being in prison, while having that court date, she's still um, defiant. 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 Yeah, exactly. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about the morality police, something we've talked about lots and lots the mm. last 10 months, but they are coming back with a vengeance, it seems. Oh boy. So on Sunday, um, there were reports um, and a spokesperson from, I guess, I don't even know what to call it, from the morality <laughs> police, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> they have a spokesperson? <laughs> apparently they do. Uh, he made it very clear that um, they would be having vans out on the streets, um, unmarked vans this time. They're dropping the name morality police. Uh, and that anyone who still insists on breaking the norms will be dealt with. Mm. In addition to that, patrolmen will now be wearing body cameras and um, cracking down, I guess. So two things on that. First of all, do you remember there was that moment two or three months into the, the uprising mm-hmm. when 
somebody put out the idea that the Iran was going to abolish the morality police. <laughs> what yeah. a joke. Well, we knew it was a joke. We knew not just yeah. a joke, but we knew it was a dangerous uh, sort of narrative to put out there because yeah. it would soften uh, the opposition to the regime and sort of um, take the wind out of some of the protests because people would go, oh, and the regime is... Well, it didn't work, and, and, and also we see it's not only not true, it's the opposite, opposite of the truth. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, the other thing is that we, we uh, have been hearing that, or we've been talking about, perhaps prematurely, but certainly with desperate hope that the goalposts have moved in Iran. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many times did we say, uh, well, at least Iran will never be what it was like before September oh, boy, 2022, yeah. right? Yeah. And part of the a big part of that is saying, I just came back from Iran. There's women walking around without a hijab. This is never going back. Everybody's, you know. And now we see that, you know, as the crackdown, which is a lot more insidious right now, we've been mm -hmm. talking about this, right? The crackdown is that they're now they're now that the eyes of the world have turned away or have softened their glare, you know, um, this, the, the, the regime is really going after everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Any, and, 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 and with back pay, it's like retroactively, mm -hmm. they, oh, by the way, you did this in November. Now we're, we're imprisoning you and nobody's going to find out. Now we're going to execute right. you. Now we're going to, and, and this thing with the hijab is, is part of that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, they have no, it's, it's almost, they're like, they're like, oh, you tried a revolution. Fuck you. Well, wait till you see what we're going to do now, right? Uh, and now that we've survived it, now mm -hmm. that we've now that we're still in power, um, it's deeply disheartening. It is it's deeply disheartening, and we see it because there's all sorts of new punishments that they're coming up with. I mean, I feel like I say this so often on this program, where the Islamic Republic continues to do things that surprise me, but then at the same time don't. It's like I've come to expect this certain level of. Yeah. just barbarians right mm. but i mean we've we've seen there was an actress who was um sentenced to counseling sessions for a personality disorder because she wore a hat instead of a scarf Be i mean crazy? absurd or there she were women who insane. were sentenced to washing uh corpses because they didn't well, have this proper is hijab the yeah, well, you, uh, the, you know the n news came out that the fact finding um uh, group mission the fact-finding mission mm -hmm. they discovered um, um, that essentially the poisoning the the poisoning of girls the school girls was retaliation from the regime unbelievable that was that's that was on BBC mm -hmm. that came out like literally so this is blatant this is very obvious that it's Khamenei's people and regime essentially against people of mm -hmm. Iran Mm -hmm. You know, it's Iran against the regime. It's th there is no gray line, and the leftists, the Zarif, the all the Nayak, all the people that like still like were hoping for some sort of reform, and then through that, hopefully more change, and slowly you've come into a democratic place. It's just that was that that was all part of the regime. Mm. That was all f the front and the ploy to distract and there's people still saying that yeah there's people exactly. I, I know somebody this this weekend said to me well you know when Khamenei dies his <laughs> son will be maybe like MBS he'll be a little bit more you know progressive and things will slowly change and it's like and what until then we just continue well, to not, even, not just what until then I mean we've seen that act before right in the early 2000s yeah, that was the that exactly. was the reform movement it didn't it didn't amount to anything That's it was right. like a there's two years of smiling and then that yeah. stopped, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is so I mean it's a yeah, it's 
it's a tough one. In terms of uh, stuff going on in the diaspora, there's the big Tear Gone Festival mm-hmm. this yes. weekend, and um, nice. our own Smart Pega. You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna be. Um, Hosting or emceeing? You're emceeing till you're gone. I am. I Ooh, am. Are you, are you ready? Do you have your lines? I am ready. Okay. Starting tomorrow. Are you emceeing in English or in Persian? English. Mm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> We're gonna leave the Farsi <laughs> to someone who's uh, better suited. Right. Interesting. Right. That could be a fun gig for you. I know, right? I don't <laughs> think anybody wants to hear me speak in English <laughs> or Farsi. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's I, I, I respect you and i'm i'm thank wishing you. you great but thank it's a these are thankless gigs these <laughs> MCing gigs as somebody who's <laughs> did it for years it's really it's really uh you know you may end up at the end of the week and going oh my god why did i do that <laughs> um, but hopefully you'll get some lovely feedback and thank you'll you. meet some nice people and yes. um are they going to introduce you as uh pega smart pega are they smart? they're going to introduce me as smart pega. are they no i'm joking oh, why not <laughs> dude that people great? are not supposed to just stick with the name you give them for the rest of their lives <laughs> Listen, like she's on a their social major daily. player in rook media yeah but that's work <laughs> <laughs> well that's him so is emceeing tear oh my god the captain the captain the great captain reza yes sir uh, <laughs> hello, I'm sir. Doing an imitation of myself. Yeah, listen, for two and a half uh, years, this guy at the beginning of the show. Hello, sir. Now he's saying I do it. Hello, sir. Um, and uh, said. well, we had you on a cheap microphone. <laughs> Today you sound mellifluous. We can, we can, sa- we can hear you sound, much better now. Right now, I sound <laughs> now I sound like hello. a normal person. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> and and uh, um, Reza June. Uh, any, I, you're always up to something interesting. Thank you. Your films uh, are right. to be seen. Uh, is there is there a new film that we can? Actually, there is. There is a documentary on Tubi you can watch. It's called Passport Control. It's about uh, human smuggling out of Thailand. Oh. Uh, we have Rev, uh, an action adventure on Amazon Prime, Netflix in the UK and Europe. If you haven't seen Rev, check yeah, out Rev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't seen Rev. Yet. I've seen Rev. You saw Rev, of course. Do you remember the character Gordy? Uh, yes, the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, challenge yes, one. Yes. The challenge one. Yes. Yeah. That was that was played by me too. Gordy is you? Gordy's also me. I'm the cop and I'm Gordy. I play two characters. And what's this Tubi thing? Well, how are we supposed yeah, to find Yeah, that's Tubi? what I was going to ask. Tubi? What's you don't Tubi? Know, what do we know that's what's a, Tubi? It's a platform, right? Yeah, it is a platform. But how do we, where do we see it? So Tubi is available on mobile, on um, any anywhere, on smart TV, mm-hmm. anywhere you get Netflix. And, and that's what the dock is on. That's where the dock is on. And it's uh, Tubi is free of charge. Uh, your own subscription is free. And it's just ad base. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's Fox, actually. So you get a lot of cool films, like cool. all the 90s, Pass- early 2000s. Password control? Passport. Passport control. Passport control. Uh, I, I didn't realize you would finish that one. I really want yeah, to. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The trailer is out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a, a minute. Yeah. It's great. That's all right. Great. Uh, it's great to have you here, man. Thanks, buddy. Always. So much fun Always. to be here. Anytime. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, the great Ezra. Ezra Cholet, an actor, a director, a bon vivant. You know what that means? <laughs> no. But sounds drinker. like... means a drinker. Oh. <laughs> a bon vivant. <laughs> a bon vivant means uh, uh, the guy who's the, uh, the, the heart of the party. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. I, know a, I know a gal in France who's bon vivant right now. Oh. Keon. Oh, Keon. <laughs> our, <laughs> our little our friend Keon. This is our dear friend Keon yes. has moved Has moved to, to Paris. Paris. And she's oh. living the Emily in Paris life. She really is. She <laughs> really is. Keon, we, Keon doch not in Paris she life. She is. She is. I mean, I... 
I I am uh, I'm amazed by yeah. her Instagram. Every other video is oh my god, this chocolate is amazing. But she's in palaces. And she's, she's loving like, it. I'm she's sure in, it is though. Yeah, it's it looks incredible. fantastic. She looks yeah. like Cinderella in every other shot. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, she's really struggling. Right. We love you, Kian. We love you, Kian. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Smart Pega. Thank you. This is full time for Rook for today. <laughs> for all things Rook related, go to our website, rookmedia.com. Nice to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Smart Pega, Savvy. Savvy. Savvy Rohan. Savvy. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Savvy. Bearded Omid. Super Parry Sauce. Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe. If you've not done so already on any or all platforms, do you have you subscribed on the platforms yet? Yes, sadly, uh, I get all the notifications. <laughs> yeah, there's still probably a couple platforms you could join. Oh on. boy, no, I'm good. Find me on Instagram <laughs> at Gian Gomeshi. Find Reza at Ezra Sholay. Find Pega on stage at Tear Gone. Mizunbashim. <laughs>